This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. It's the show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I'm the editor-at-large at Mississippi Day. I also draw a few cartoons for him as well. The Delta variant forced the 2021 Mississippi Book Festival to go virtual this year, as you might have heard. And we're going to give you a taste of what to expect as we interview three of the authors who are set to appear. Susan Cushman, who wrote the wonderful book, John and Mary Margaret. William Morris, who has written This Magic Moment. And Larry Wells will join us toward the end of the show with In Faulkner's Shadow. And we got a full show today. We're going to jump into the show. Michelle says hi. She's waving. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing? And um, I'm going to read real quick uh, just because, you know, we did the show about the book festival a couple weeks ago. And obviously, as we all know, the Delta variant has uh, swamped the hospitals in Mississippi and the organizers of the book festival made the very hard but very wise decision to go virtual this year uh, to make sure that we weren't sending any more people to the hospital. As you know, uh, UMC has got hospitals now in the parking garages. So they made a good call, but it's a hard call. And so I was just going to share with you what they put out. And uh, basically, good news, great news. The good news is that we were ready to put on an exceptional book festival. The bad news is that the pandemic has gotten in the way and some of the authors from our stellar lineup have already withdrawn while others are saying that they probably will. All citing misgivings about attending as the watch current health crisis unfold and across the country. Truth is, without authors, there is no festival. It's that simple. So the great news is, although the Mississippi Book Festival and staff are heartbroken, boy, they are. They work so hard to get this thing ready. Uh, we are not defeated. No, they're not defeated. We are poised to overcome a cancellation of this year's in-person literary lawn party by celebrating our 2021 authors through virtual engagement in the weeks and months ahead. So we're basically going to do, and I'm one of the, the moderators for one of the panels, so we're going to have a panel, and you're going to get to hear a couple of my guests today as well. Indeed, we're already making plans for August 2022. So anyway, uh, without further ado, I'm going to... Uh, Bring in our first author, and I had a chance to interview her a few weeks ago from Mississippi Today. Uh, her name's Susan Cushman, and she is a fantastic author, a very great writer, great storyteller. And the, her new book out is John and Mary Margaret, and it is a fictional love story, but it's based on non-fictional events. Susan, it's good to talk to you again. It seems like the world has changed ten thousand times since the last time we spoke. Hi, Marshall. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, I'm heartbroken over the festival, and so thrilled that you are continue to support its efforts virtually. Oh, of course. I can't wait till we have our virtual session. Of course, we'll be able to bring our, our third panelist back in who is not going to be able to come to Johnny Bernhardt. So that's going to be great, too. You um, last time we spoke, you were about to go on a book tour. Ed, did you manage to get in many events before everything started closing back down again? Thank God. I drove um, 2,300 miles. Good grief. From Memphis through Georgia, down South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi. I had nine in-person events. Wonderful. And um, it was wonderful that places were opened up, if, if only briefly. Now, most of those were not the larger cities. Right. You know, because my, my uh, launch in Memphis had to be virtual through Novel, and in Jackson had to be virtual through Lemuria at the time. But all of those other places, including like the Pat Conroy Literary Center in Beaufort, South Carolina, had some wonderful big events. So I'm really thankful I had that window. 
Yeah, I am too. And it, there really is nothing better than actually being there in person and getting to meet your readers. And, and I know you have a lot of fans already because you've written several books. You're, you live in Memphis now, uh, but you're from here in Jackson. In fact, I'm probably yes, a right. quarter of a mile from where you grew up right now, um, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of cool. But anyway, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your childhood, because it really does kind of creep into the story uh, of this wonderful book that you've written. Yeah, well, there's my real childhood and there's my uh, fantasized childhood. My real childhood is I was born in Jackson in 1951, and I grew up really in North Jackson in uh, Broadmoor as a little girl and then over near Span Elementary for junior high and high school. But I wished I had grown up in the Bellhaven neighborhood like my character, Mary Margaret. And uh, I did live there in the, um, in the early in the 1970s, real close to where Eudora Welty lived. But I didn't actually meet her. I never had the courage to speak to her at the local Jitney Jungle grocery or to knock on her door like a lot of people did. So I lived vicariously through my character, Mary Margaret. Uh, I went to Murrah High School, and then I went to Ole Miss. And then I uh, began to raise our family. I was married in 70. Began to raise our family in uh, Jackson, but moved to Memphis in 1988, where I've been since then. Have four grown, three grown children and four grandchildren. Oh, that's wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. And I love, like you said, we'll, we'll, I'm going to give you to give the elevator pitch on the novel and kind of give everybody a taste of it a little bit. But Mary Margaret is just such a wonderful character. And yes, she did have a really cool relationship with Eudora Welty, one that absolutely changed her her just whole perspective on the South and growing up on right. that. Did Just out of curiosity, did you have a moment like that in your life where suddenly this idyllic world that you maybe grew up in suddenly didn't, you, you kind of understood that maybe it was a little bit different than you originally thought? Yeah, it, it was a little gradual and then very sudden. A little gradual meaning, even as a child, our African-American maid, Lily Bell, was like a member of our family in many ways. But it even bothered me as a young child that she called me Miss Susan and called my mother, you know, Mrs. Johnson, and we had to call her Lily Bell. So I have a scene in the novel, you know, where Mary Margaret is asking her maid, why don't I call you Mrs. Williams, you know, and what what is it with all of that? So some things bothered me back then, but the privileged white bubble that I lived in really did protect me from a lot of the reality of what was going on until I got in high school. And um, I graduated in 1969, 1,200 kids in my high school, maybe 20 blacks. So, you know, I really did not have a big experience there of getting to know a lot of other black kids. Two years later uh, is when the segregation, um, the integration lines were drawn and busing happened. But I was already gone to Ole Miss by then. So I missed a lot of that experience. My first cousin, John Jones, who is a lawyer there in Jackson, edited a book about that whole event called Lines Were Drawn, and he interviewed students from those classes just after me, um, and he was in one of those classes. So, But what happened to me years and years later, uh, well, we adopted two children from South Korea. Our daughter married a black man. I have mixed-race granddaughters. So this began to open my heart even more to, to make me wonder, you know, am I racist? You know, what is the deal with the way I was raised? Then the pandemic hit in 2020, and all the uh, protests, the racial protests were happening in Memphis. And I began to have a a greater awakening, caused a lot by reading Cast, 
by Isabel Wilkerson, an amazing book, a master class on caste, on race, in the U.S., in Nazi Germany, and in India. I can't recommend it more highly. And as I read it and researched to write my book, John and Mary Margaret, uh, my awakening just grew and grew. It's like I have to have a voice. You know, I was 70 years old, no vaccine for COVID yet, so I didn't feel safe to go out on the streets of Memphis and physically join the protest. But my protest happened with my voice in writing the book, John and Mary Margaret. Well, tell us a little bit about John and Mary Margaret, because like I said, it is a fiction uh, love story that is based on some very real events that took place at the time that the book is set. Exactly. So John is a black boy from Memphis. Mary Margaret's a white girl from Jackson. They both go to Ole Miss in 1966. They meet in an English class. They both love Faulkner, and they fall in love. And as they try to date, uh, of course, that is not well accepted at all. You know, there's scenes that are said at the Tri-Delt sorority house where John is beat up for, you know, bringing her home from a date there. And it was pretty obvious early on that this was not going to work. And so they did not continue dating. And as their lives go separate ways, um, there are scenes of John who established, who was one of the people who established the Black Student Union and was uh, real involved in protests that were going on on campus. Mary Margaret continued her white bubble started dating a white boy from Memphis, you know, and, and had her, or uh, was sung to as being the sweetheart of Sigma Chi, and married Walker and went off to Memphis to live happily ever after while John studied Ole Miss for law school. But almost 50 years later, they meet again, and the reason they meet again comes from something else important in my life. My mother died from Alzheimer's in 2016, and they meet again because each of their spouses they are together in a nursing home in Memphis. One has Alzheimer's and one has Lewy body disorder. So that's how they meet up again. And if you want to know what happens after that, you have to read the book. Oh, exactly. We're not going to give away the ending, which, which I, you know, I, you and I both have that same experience. I lost my dad to it. You lost your mom to Alzheimer's. And it's a very tough thing to write about. And by the way, you did write an absolutely wonderful book called Tangles and Plaques, A Mother and Daughter Face Alzheimer. It's a memoir, too, Thank which you. I highly recommend as well. You know, your characters, you have several characters that are based on real characters um, that, that and events that happened in there a little bit. Can you give a couple examples of some of the characters that are based on real people? I'm sure. Well, of course, in addition to you, Dora Wealthy, John, the main character, is a composite of Don Cole and I'm drawing a blank on the other one's name. I knew I would do this. They were two people who were members of what are called the Ole Miss Eight. Um, These students were expelled for protesting. Um, Some of them had to go elsewhere to get their degrees. Some never got their diplomas. Uh, And 60 students were arrested at a protest in February of 1970 at Fulton Chapel when the Up With People group was performing. And so John is kind of a composite of two of those guys. Uh, There's also scenes, of course, with with Martin Luther King when John goes to Memphis to join the sanitation workers uh, protest and hears Martin Luther King's uh, mountaintop talk. I'm trying to think other, if there are other real characters that are, well, there's scenes at Jackson State when there was protests there because um, John's wife, um, Elizabeth, uh, was involved in that. So, you know, I did a lot of research to be sure that the 50 years of civil rights history that were the backdrop for the book were true. 
said the fictional characters were set in this very true historical setting. It's you know I love history, and that was one of the things I really did enjoy about the book was just seeing little you know known figures pop up, and I was like, well, you did a very nice job doing the research on that. How did the book happen? And as we got a couple more minutes before the end of the end, end of the segment, uh-huh. but um, how did you come about writing it? Because I, I think there is a pretty cool story behind this. Thank you. Um, in twenty. 20- 19, I published a collection of short stories called Friends of the Library, and they take place in 10 small towns in Mississippi where a fictional author, based on me, of course, is visiting the Friends of the Library groups in each town. And one of those stories is John and Mary Margaret's story. And several of my readers of that short story collection contacted me and said, we want more of John and Mary Margaret's story. Why don't you turn it into a novel? I, I don't know that I would have ever thought to do that. And um, so it was those reader suggestions that it caused me to write John and Mary Margaret. It was perfect timing during the pandemic and during the protests last spring and summer to, to write it. And I had the skeleton of the book from the short story. So I just dug deeper. You did. And, and, I, and I highly recommend to everybody who's listening to follow you on social media because you, you have a lot of energy and you put up a lot of really cool things. And it's really a lot of fun to, to follow you, too. What are the best way for Thank people you. to be able to, to do that? Probably Facebook. Uh, also, my website, which is just www.susancushman.com. Within that, there's a blog. I'm active on there. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. But I'm on Facebook the most, and I do like to put a variety of things up there, not just about writing and books, but about other things. You do. It's, it's really fun, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And we're going to continue. Uh, we'll continue this conversation when we have our virtual I guess, book festival virtual event, and I will make sure all the listeners know when that's going to be. But for right now, Susan, thank you so much. Thank you, and will everybody please buy books from Lemuria Bookstore, who is sponsoring the festival. Yeah, they're great folks. They really are. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to welcome William Morris, who has an incredible book. I can't wait to talk about it with him. It's always good to visit. It's called This Magic Moment. And, of course, if you have a question or comment, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The information presented on this program is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult an appropriate professional for guidance about your concerns. (laughs) 
You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large at Mississippi Day. And of course, I draw editorial cartoons as well. We've been talking with authors today. Of course, the book festival got canceled, so we decided to bring some authors on here and talk to them just to kind of keep it alive. They're about to go virtual, actually, so it's not totally canceled. But anyway, we just spoke with Susan Cushman. Fantastic interview. You can always go to our podcast if you want to hear it again. And now we have back on the show William Morris, who wrote, a fantastic book called This Magic Moment. Bill, welcome back. Um, we actually talked to you a long time ago about the book, but we're going to talk to you a little bit more about it again. Honestly, it is such a wonderful, loving book. And I can tell you what I love about it is that in this time right now, where really, honestly, it seems like fear hangs over us as a cloud. It just kind of shows what a difference somebody can make in somebody's life with just caring and loving. And you, you did that. I'm not, I don't expect you to say, you know, I'm a great guy and anything, but you honestly cared about people and changed lives on it. And that's, I think the thing I love about your book the most. Well, Marshall, good morning to you and to your listeners. And thank you so much for hosting us uh, on this uh, program. As Susan said, uh, we're all greatly disappointed in its, uh, closure for this year, but uh, the virtual is going to offer us an opportunity actually to hear many of the uh, authors that sometimes I don't get to hear when I'm racing around trying to get to another session or something. So there will be some positive things to come out of this, uh, though I truly wish we had had it uh, live, but it, uh, we're going to make the best of it. Um, and so, Marshall, it was a joy uh, doing this book. I, I did not do it uh, like I'm going to be a real good guy and uh, do something nice. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't saying that yeah. you were making yourself look good. It just, yeah. it, you just, honestly, you made other people look, and at the end of the day, I think you got something wonderful out of it in exchange. Well, oh my gosh, I've got a, a lifetime of joy that will last in all eternity. I, it's one reason why I wrote the book. I want it to outlive me, the story is a story that needs to be heard nationwide. Uh, it's a story of love. It's not forced in any way. Uh, music was the chassis that uh, birthed this thing. And I did not know I could sing until I was 40 or about that, maybe 30, somewhere along in there in Washington, D.C. And some of them heard me carrying on with them at intermission in a performance of the Moon Glows. Yeah, let's back up for a second, because yeah. that isn't the most amazing story. Number one, it just... I think everybody needs to know. Number one, you're not an author by trade. You've been right. in the you've been in the insurance business your whole life, and, yeah. and music did play a very important part early on. Maybe we'll touch on that story too. But I love the story about how you are in Washington D.C. You see a band that you grew up and loved and playing, and next thing you know, you're on stage singing with them. I just <laughs> that just proves to me you have never met a stranger in your life. Well, uh, that's true uh, about. Uh, you know, God gave me the ability to meet uh, people uh, well, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. But, uh, Marshall, the the music was recorded in my mind, in my, my very being. And so uh, at intermission, I had just finished hearing the Moon Glows uh, perform so many of their wonderful numbers. And so I went and asked the manager how I might meet these guys, and uh, he pointed upstairs. So I went racing up there, and... Billy McFadder, Clyde McFadder's son, was singing in the group that night. Clyde was the lead singer of the original group of drifters. And uh, anyway, I got to singing with Billy a little bit, and uh, then I started into a song called Daddy's Home by Shep and the Limelights. 
Well, these other guys were over there rehearsing. They stopped their rehearsal, and they came over and joined around. And when I hit a high note at the very end, he, Bobby Lester, their original lead singer and might say virtuoso singer, he was just phenomenal, said, come on, baby, you got to do the lead in the next show. We'll back you up. I said, man, I'm not about to mess up your performance. But it happened. And uh, I knew there had to be a reason behind it. I just didn't know what, and a small, silent voice, when I was asking about it, I said, Lord, what was this about? He said, it's about my glory, Bill. I'll reveal to you in due time. So then, Marshall, as you know, a year later to the date, there was a story all over the front page of Clarence Ledger about Prentice Barnes, the original bass singer of that group who had been disabled for a number of years, and he was, he'd been in a train car collision. And uh, he had a good mind, and he could still sing, but he had no ability to go perform on the stage or that kind of thing. Um, and by then, the Moonglows had all broken up and gone their separate ways, as so many of those groups did for various reasons. But anyway, when that story appeared, I knew then that was the confirmation of why I sang with him, and I heard that silent voice again say, Now do you know, now go take care of him. So for 26 and a half years, I became like Prentice's best friend. And uh, we we went to various venues all over the nation when he began to be recognized some 10 or 15 years later. Um, we went. Uh, they had me at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as their special guest at, in New York at uh, the Waldorf. And, uh, and then I sang in Boston Symphony Hall with them at the Doo-Wop Hall of Fame. Uh, it was just one, what I'd call miracle after another, whatever you, word you want to use for it, but it, it, it certainly is something totally out of the ordinary. And that's why the book had to be written, is because friendships were born across racial lines, um, people I had nothing in common with other than the music. I loved that, and it grew into our love of each other. And uh, then, you know, there were a couple of other characters involved, and three others, Bill Pinckney of the Drifters. I ended up producing their first two gospel CDs. Harvey Fuqua, uh, who married Barry Gordy, says the guy who started Motown. Uh, Harvey developed Marvin Gaye, brought him in the business. Uh, Etta James, Tammy Terrell, uh, taught the Delts and the Spinners how to harmonize. I mean, this guy was something else, and here he was, a guy who had arranged most all of the uh, Moonglow songs. And then lastly, a guy from Mississippi, Rufus McKay, a guy who we all just loved. But he disappeared from our lives. Uh, he was the lead singer of the Red Tops, and they were uh, so popular, played all over the state and uh, in various venues throughout the South, really, but primarily in the Delta. And people would go week after week to hear him perform, and Rufus would sing that beautiful rendition. I don't know if I've ever heard a more beautiful one of Danny Boy, because the girls would uh, just they would sit down on the floor and, and at the foot of the stage while he sang, and he just mesmerized everybody. And um, I talked Rufus into moving back to Mississippi. He had been gone; nobody knew where he was, but he left during the early 60s and you know so many of our African-American friends uh, 
departed this territory and went elsewhere, I convinced Rufus that we loved him very much and would he please move back to Mississippi so that in his latter years that we might be able to show that love. And that opportunity came, and it's a very poignant moment in the book. And, Marshall, honestly, I, I, I have a hard time holding back tears when I think about these guys. I was signing books up in uh, Nantucket a few weeks ago, I had a wonderful book signing up there, and uh, Main Street Books, uh, uh, Main St- Mitchell's Main Street, or whatever. Anyway, uh, it's on the Main Street. Uh, sold out up there, and um, you know, I was going through the story with a lady, and kind of, and I was flipping through the book, and I came to the picture of Prentice and me, and uh, my voice started cracking. I couldn't see anything for probably at least 30 seconds. I just, tears started coming down my cheeks. So all those feelings are still in there. I sang at all their funerals. Every one of them. Bill Pinkney, I sang White Christmas over at Sumter, South Carolina. You know, the very famous rendition that the Drifters did. And Bill Pinkney on the lead. And it was a, it was been on Home Alone. Anybody who's ever watched Home Alone, you hear that. Anyway. And you hear that uh, wonderful voice of Bill Pinkney's. And well, I think what's so wonderful about that that story is that here you start singing that, and you've got all these professional singers in the audience anyway, and you've just yeah. got, you know just uh, over a thousand people in there singing, and all of a sudden everybody joins in, and so that had to right. be like a total God moment just sitting in there. Oh, just, and, I mean, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Oh, it was something. I still remember looking over. I saw uh, several of the guys. I remember. Uh, Henry Russell, and he was one of Bill's leads for a period of time. And and uh, when I said, uh, Bill used to stop in the middle of his song, not stop, but as a part of his singing, he'd say, hey, fellas, can I get a little help? Oh. And then everybody would join in. So I said that. I looked over at them. I said, fellas, can I get a little help? And they that's when they started. And then the whole audience, actually, Marshall, it was, uh, people said it was more than 3,000 people in that venue. Oh, that, wow. Yeah. Bill's sister came up to me later and said, I thought that was Bill singing up there. Bill used to tease me and say, Bill, you know, when I'm gone, you're going to have to take my place in the group. Oh, hey, hey, Bill, um, I've I got to be honest with you. I neglected this in the first two times I've yeah. interviewed you. Honestly, can you give us a taste of your voice? Because, I, mean, I mean, number one, you've got a fantastic radio voice. I'm oh. just sitting here thinking, I want to be you in my next life. Oh, and then, But, too, can you sing us just something well, just quick well, and little? To, I, now, this is, <laughs> your audience knows this is totally impromptu. Well, I'm going to do Bill's number, the, the White Christmas number. Okay. Well, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know. Dip, 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 where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear those sleigh bells in the snow, in the snow. All right, that's enough. All right, Bill. The, my second question is, my follow-up is on this. How did you not know you could do that for four years? I mean, that's incredible. Well, I, I don't know. I just, you know, <laughs> I would just sing in the car or in the shower or wherever. I just loved that music, and it had so much feeling to it. Yeah. And it has not been replicated. I mean, we've had other good rock and roll-type music, but that 
that music, that 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 one, those were the love ballads that ushered in the moments that we, and that's the magic moment, you know, which, which is a metaphor for all of us for those years and for any special years of our lives. But those, that was my magic moment were, were those 10 or 15 years from the early 50s on through, uh, let's say, late 60s, where that music was so dominant. And um, and then it began to fade out, and but not out of my heart. So uh, 10 years later, I didn't know it. I, I, I really did not know I, uh, that I could sing. But I think that there's something that happens in our minds you know, we can remember a lot of things, but if, think of the mystery of our being able to remember the key and the, the all the sounds and nuances in a song that gets recorded in our mind, and then we're able to sing it back out 10 years later or 15 or whatever. And uh, to me, that's that's a miracle in itself. Bill, um, just just ask you this question a little bit. You know, we... Honestly, um, there's a new TV show out that's out. Everybody talking about it's called Ted Lasso. And basically the synopsis of Ted Lasso is that, that there's an a American football coach coaches in England, but he, he really cares about the people around him, and he ends up changing their worlds, and therefore they end up changing his world. And I, I'm like, they totally stole the plot of your book because your book, honestly. <laughs> but, I mean, like I said, you didn't have to do the, the, the kind things. And, and I think about you with Prentice when he's like, he's got a, a – he's got a – an artificial arm for, yeah. from the accident, from the train accident. Right. And, you know, you're trying to get him to the, the Hall of Fame and you're helping him get dressed. And oh. <laughs> But just these little moments of kindness yeah. that you show pay off at the end. Of course, you obviously get to, to meet some of the people that made a big difference in your life growing on, but you changed their lives in the process. And that's what I love about the book. Oh, Marshall, thank you. I, there's a joy there that's... Um, not entirely definable in words, uh, one of Willie Morris's favorite words, ineffable, and I just have to apply that uh, right here. That 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 story is uh, it. I tried to capture it the best I could in words, but there's so much more than just that. And I I hope that it will be um, uh, perhaps a movie or something someday if it if it will bless America. Um, you know, we'll see what happens, but. Uh, as Susan said, we've got to get back on the road and sign some books, and um, I'm looking forward to some of that as um, when the COVID will allow it. <laughs> Definitely, I, I do look forward to our um, I look forward to our virtual visit that we're going to have soon. With of course Susan, we just talked with yeah. her, and and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Let me ask you real quick here. You know, sure. here you go to the Bacchus Ball, uh, which is put on by the yep. Diabetes Association here in, in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's a big annual event. It's a lot of fun. You walk in right. the room, and you suddenly hear somebody singing that's totally familiar, and it's Bill. You know, it's Bill it's Pigney. Bill Pigney, but, right. Yeah, and it was, but it was, <laughs> that's one of the things that totally kind of blows me away about the book is just these little happenstances that really aren't just accidental, you know, because then he ends up – you know, getting to, you know, meet, uh, run into Prentice again, and they were oh, friends. He, and- he wanted to see Prentice again, and, and Marshall, when he when he saw Prentice in his condition, kind of stumbling up the sidewalk, I took Prentice down there to see him at the Ramada Inn, uh, the Coliseum, that's where they were staying. Bill, those great big burly arms of his, said, oh, Prentice, brother. He just wrapped his arms around him. It was all I could do to keep from crying. But we went on in and spent three hours 
together listening to Bill and Prentice talk about old times at the Apollo Theater and uh, all the wonderful experiences they had and some of the experiences that weren't so wonderful. Um, and um, that was a, a precious moment. Bill wanted me to get in touch with Dick Clark, which I was actually able to do, but Dick had already planned his program for showing the history of rock and roll and wrote me a nice about a page and a half letter explaining that and but I was trying to get him to recognize the moon glows and the drifters and a lot of those people, you know, who were ahead of some of Motown sounds. Yeah, and you know, we I just interviewed Bobby Rush not long ago and his new oh, yeah. his new book's I've fantastic. You know Bobby. I mean he's just yeah. just a, a big ball he's of energy. And a lot of fun and yeah. and uh, I definitely recommend his book too, but I really love yours. Thank you for being on with us today, Bill. Thank I look you, forward to Marshall. God's blessings to you and your crowd. All right. Well we're gonna hey. take okay. We're gonna take a quick quick break of the book, of course, is uh, this magic moment, and I highly recommend it. Coming up next is author Larry Wells. He's got a fantastic book out as well. It's called In Faulkner's Shadow. We'll talk with him about that. So we're going to take a quick break. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. By the look in your eyes, sweeter than wine, softer than the summer night, everything I want I have. Whenever I hold you tight This magic moment While your lips are close to mine Will last forever Forever till the end of time Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. It's been a great one. I want to thank our Previous authors, Susan Cushman and, and William Morris, for joining us as well. And now um, we're going to have joining us just an Oxford legend, just a guy I really, 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 really admire and appreciate. So I'm glad he's on the show. He's author and publisher Larry Wells. Larry, thank you for joining us today. Um, hope things are doing well up in Oxford. Thanks, Marshall. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, you're starting to get the kids back, so it's going to get busy on the square again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's get it. Let's get it together now. Let's start getting vaccinated. Uh, yeah, that would be very helpful so that they can continue to have school. That would be a very important thing. Um, y'all, you're staying healthy, aren't you? Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, congratulations on the book. It's been out for a bit, um, but it is really good. And uh, congratulations on that. I got to tell you that when I first took this job, I guess it was in. Uh, 96. Uh, so, I, yeah, when I got the job here in 96, my boss gave me a present and unwrapped it. And it was uh, Willie's North Toward Home. And she looked at me and she said, if you're going to understand Mississippi, this is where you start. 
And it's yeah. it's funny, you know, the literary world, it seems, you know, of course, I've lived here for 25 years, so I'm fairly new. I'm a newcomer to Mississippi. But now, so in my mind, Oxford's always kind of been the center of the literary universe. Uh, but, you know, you've really played a big part in building that, um, particularly since, of course, you know, William Faulkner was, of course, the bright, shining, shining star for so long. But then you you played a big part in helping attract other people to help build that legacy a little bit. In fact, it started with Willie, as you said. Uh, our journey with Willie began at the Greenwood Arts Festival in 1978. And we met Willie at the home of Bill and Betty Jane Whittington's home. They gave a party for Willie. And um, we were out in the, the yard having drinks at an outdoor bar. And uh, there were a lot of people gathered there. Willie's first words to us were, would you stand between me and those blue-haired ladies? They're going to ask me to uh, address their book club, and I can't say no to women of my mother's generation. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> so that began our uh, 20-something-year odyssey with Willie Morris, and um, it turned out he wanted us to introduce him to Porter Fortune, the Chancellor of Ole Miss, so that he, he wasn't at the party that night, but to begin the arrangements to have him be writer in residence. And, and of course, we, we did that. We were happy to do that. And it turned out that Ole Miss was receptive and actually thrilled to have Willie there. And uh, he came in in 1981 in the spring of, I'm sorry, in the at New Year's Eve of 1980. He and David Ray Morris, his son, drove down from Bridgehampton and uh, had everything piled in their car. Luckily, we had uh, arranged for Willie to have a faculty house to rent. And uh, Dean and her friends had already made up the beds. Actually, we rented the furniture for him. We, we assumed he wouldn't have any furniture. We didn't even ask him. We just furnished the house. Uh, we put food in the fridge, and uh, I put a fifth of Jack Daniels on the dining room table. There you <laughs> go. We, so that. That started uh, Willie's tenure at Ole Miss, and it was fantastic uh, the way the students embraced him, rushed to his class. I saw students running to his class across campus like it was a football game or something, and uh, Willie delivered. He had friends uh, from the writing world in New York come and visit his class, William Styron, George Clinton, um, wow. Winston Groom the widow of James Jones, who wrote From Here to Eternity, uh, Gloria Jones. And um, the town really lavished all the affection on Willie that they wanted to give William Faulkner, but he wouldn't let them. <laughs> he, he was still mad at the town for calling him Count No Count and uh, not supporting his writing when he was young. He never forgave the town. And um, uh, Willie was... Uh, given all the affection that that Faulkner had refused and that later spilled over to Barry Hanna when he came now, yeah. Hanna Hanna showed up and um, he and Willie were were twin writers in residence for a while we call them rivals in residence and uh, they uh, they met one night we introduced we met uh, Barry at, at uh, Lewis Allahide's house he, he had been the chairman of the English department at Clinton Mississippi College when Barry went there and they were old friends. So Barry came to Ole Miss actually looking for a job. He didn't tell us that, but we knew that he was. And he had left the University of Alabama and was put loose and fancy free, let's say. So 
the first words Barry said to me, he looked at Dean, and he had a, a Bowie knife in his hand, which he was sticking in Lewis Delahunt's floor. Bam, bam, bam. And he looks up, kind of that moody, sinister Marlon Brando look he had, and he says, I can overwhelm you and uh, take your wife. And Dean immediately said, you'll have to fight both of us. And when she said that, Barry fell in love with her forever. He called her that scrappy Faulkner woman. And uh, so Dean, uh, Dean and I then uh, were became handlers without really meaning to for Barry and, and Willie because Barry wanted to be writer in residence and he wanted Willie uh, to be journalist in residence. And that's what happened. Willie was happy to accommodate Barry. The, the journalism school wanted Willie to teach there anyway. So everything worked out. And then, of course, uh, Oxford began to uh, welcome other writers. You know, we had we had a whole... Richard Ford had already lived here. Of course, John Grisham was here. But but they left and, and moved away. And, and then uh, Oxford started uh, Barry's successors as at the um, at the creative uh, writers masters program at Ole Miss were Beth Ann Finley and Tom Franklin. Beth Ann took over for Barry and has done a marvelous job. You know, Ace Atkins came here and started to write his wonderful mysteries and uh, Tom Franklin favored the world with Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter, one of the best uh, mysteries ever written in my opinion. And um, it just has taken off from there. And Oxford had been struggling to replace William Faulkner. When we came here, I came here in 1970, and he had been dead eight years, and the town still hadn't really learned to function without him. They didn't know, what are we going to do? They hadn't bought Roanoke yet. Jill hadn't sold it to him, uh, to them. That's his daughter, Jill Faulkner Summers, who lived in Charlottesville. And um, the... Uh, the Faulkner Conference hadn't hadn't started yet. Evans Harrington was very, and Ann Abbey uh, started the uh, Faulkner Conference in 1974. So Jill sold Roanoke to Ole Miss in 1973, and that began the next era of of life without Faulkner in Oxford. Uh, Faulkner would always be their most famous native son, of course, but there had to be an afterlife, and. Um, and the Faulkner Conference began that process, I think, because of all the writers they brought in to speak. And then Square Books opened in 1977. And you couldn't ask for a, a greater bookstore. Faulkner himself would have adored Square Books. He would have loved it. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite places to go sign books. It's just it's so, And it's one of my favorite places to go shop just because, I mean, Richard, they've, they've, they've done a great job with it. It's unbelievable. It's a mecca. Yeah. It's a literary. Mecca, and all the writers in America want to sign books in Faulkner's town. They can't wait to get here, and we we are really, of course. Then they go to uh, to to Jackson to Lemuria, mm-hmm. and uh, we we've got a uh, we, uh, the the literary tradition is flourishing in Mississippi. Now you're talking is part of that, by the way. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, and uh, and also. Conversations on MPB, which is a, a beautiful tradition that you started there. Well, one of the things. Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and Larry, I'll be honest with you. The thing that I enjoy as an artist here, you know, as the cartoonist side of me, is the fact that 
the writers and the artists in Mississippi are all so, for the most part, very friendly and very opening and very welcoming. I mean, you mentioned Beth Ann and um, Tom. They've got to be the two nicest human beings on the planet. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, and when I'm sitting here, you know, interviewing these, you know, authors, I'm just just totally in awe of them for what they can do. But also just I was like, can I be your friend? I mean, this is just amazing. I mean, just everybody's so, so incredibly friendly. Um, there's, I love the title, like I said, and it's cause it's, it means both, I guess, Oxford and you in, in a kind of strange way, uh, being in Faulkner's shadow a little bit. I mean, you married into the family and you mentioned 1970 and that's when you and Dean met. And, and the first words Dean, I think ever said to you were just something that are, are almost tattoo worthy. <laughs> she said, what's the participle? Exactly. What happened was. We were, we, we were at the university in, in, in between classes. Classes were changing, and I was in Binder at Hall. She comes running out, and she didn't keep that class in the room longer than 30 seconds when a kid said, hey, Ms. Mallard, her, her maiden name, I mean, her, her first married name was Mallard. Ms. Mallard, what's a participle? And he was just being a smart aleck, of course. And so... Uh, she fell for it and dismissed the class, said she didn't know. She couldn't remember. She, he called her on the spot. She came running up to me and said, what's the participle? I knew who she was, of course. We all knew that Faulkner's niece was in graduate school. Everybody in the English department knew. And uh, so I was happy to uh, to be asked. And uh, that we hit it off. And, and uh, I became immediately her one of her go-to people on the in the graduate school for a syllabus and sample freshman themes, and I, you know, showed her all the the I'd been teaching for four years at Murray State University. I came from the University of Alabama, by the way. I got a BA and an MA there, and then took a PhD at Ole Miss. But Dean and I hit it off, and we 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 didn't. Uh, about a year later, we were dating. And um, you probably noticed the story. You remember the story in, in my memoir about the night that Pappy's ghost appeared. Oh, us. yeah. Uh, the uh, We couldn't decide whether to get married. We both had children from our first marriage, and we were broke, and we were poor graduate students. And so we sat on her front steps one night until midnight trying to, to decide whether to take the leap. Everybody goes through this, you know. But not everybody has William Faulkner's ghost appear to them that night. So I go home, and, and at 3 o'clock I was awakened by a sense of a presence in the room. And I looked around, and at the window, there was his face. Wow. It, was on, it looked like a photograph of him taken by Cofield. It was nothing but leaf shadow through a, a street lamp through it, shining through a tree. But it was as clear as a photo. And I thought... Well, maybe the wind will blow the leaves and the face will go away, but it didn't. It stayed there for an hour. We were mano a mano. I couldn't go back to sleep. I was wondering, what's it doing there? What's the point? What's he saying to me? I really did have a sense of a ghostly presence. And the next morning in, in the student union, we were having coffee, and I told Dean, I think your uncle paid me a visit last night. And she said, was it at 3 o'clock? And at 3 o'clock, she woke up and smelled his pipe smoke. Wow. Now, she's a half a mile away from me across town. I'm living in, a, in an apartment at a lady's house, and Dean is in 
Miss Maud Faulkner's home. William spent many hours, you know, and um, so she walked down the hall, and the pipe smoke was coming from the dining room where he had finished his book Absalom, Absalom. He he smoked and, a very distinctive type of tobacco too. So I mean, yeah. it was yeah, it was a very distinctive smell. It was a Dunhill blend, which Dean knew very well because she and her cousin Vicky used to steal tobacco from it, his can, and roll their own when they were teenagers. Dean <laughs> Dean was, was uh, yeah, she was a pistol, <laughs> to say the least. Wow. Oh boy, yeah. So that so we had to decide had had Faulkner come, had his presence appeared to warn us, yeah, not to get her to. <laughs> To bless our union, and and a few days later, we took our babysitter, who who was the caretaker at Roanoke, Chrissy, Chrissy Price. We took her home to, uh, and walked her up the the driveway at Roanoke. She she lived in 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 the uh, caretaker's uh, residence behind Roanoke, and uh, a million fireflies all lit up at once. Bam! Just like oh, that. Oh wow. Well, I had never seen that happen. Of course, fireflies are mainly answering each other and lighting up because it's a mating ritual of some insect kind. But this was spectacular. And the first words out of Dean's mouth were, Pappy, as if Pappy himself, his presence, had had called up all the fireflies in Bailey's Woods and said, okay, guys, we're going to light it up. Get ready. That's all, you know. In, in hindsight, too. I mean, it was the fireflies were right. Pappy was right. It was a sign. It was a sign that y'all were meant to be because you really. It was really a, a beautiful uh, relationship. And you know, we're kind of unfortunately running a little bit low on the time. We got about a minute left. Yeah. But but he. Okay. But a lot of people don't realize this though. That of course he practically raised her because her dad. Um, died in a plane crash in 1935. So, yeah, um, yeah he was a huge influence on her. He was, he was uh, her, her not, not only her uncle, but he adopted her, and he became her father. He was her ward. Yeah. And uh, the, when she died, she died smiling in her bed, and I rushed in there and found her smiling across the room at somebody. Yeah. And I know that that was William Faulkner's image. That's incredible. That's incredible. The, the book, of course, is In Faulkner's Shadow. Um, by Larry Wells, highly recommend it too. And of course, her book was Every Day in the Sun, which is also an incredible, beautiful read too. Um, Larry, thank thank you so much for joining us today. It's always good to talk to you. I can't wait till I get back up that way. And um, I, I guess eventually we're going to sit down and do a conversations too. But thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Marshall. Glad to be there. Yeah, talk to you soon. Well, okay. Well, with that. Ends another great show. I want to thank our wonderful guests today, Susan Cushman, William Morris, and Larry Wells for joining us. If you want to hear the show again or any past episodes, you can listen to the podcast at mpbonline.org slash now you're talking. Now you're talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. It's produced by Michelle McAdoo. Uh, you can also see my cartoons at mississippitoday.org and other great reporting as well. Stay tuned for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit with Josie Bidwell and join us next week for more great conversation here on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.